Section 2 of The Art of Worldly Wisdom by Balthazar Gracian Translated by Joseph Jacobs This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Sandra Schmidt Introduction 1. Of Balthazar Gracian and his works We may certainly say of Gracian what Heine, by an amiable fiction, said of himself. He was one of the first men of his century. For he was born on the 8th of January, 1601, N.S. at Belmont, a suburb of Calatayud, in the kingdom of Aragon. Calatayud, properly Calat Ayub, Jobstown, is nearly on the site of the ancient Bilbilis, Martial's birthplace. As its name indicates, it was one of the Moorish settlements, and nearly one of the most northern. By Gracian's time, it had again been Christian and Spanish for many generations, and Gracian himself was of noble birth. For a Spaniard of noble birth, only two careers were open, arms and the church. In the 17th century, arms had yielded to the cassock, and Balthazar and his three brothers all took orders. Felipe, his eldest, joined the order of St. Francis. The next brother, Pedro, became a Trinitarian during his short life, and the third, Raimundo, became a Carmelite. Balthazar himself tells us, Agudeza, Chapter 25, that he was brought up in the house of his uncle, the licentiate Antonio Gracian, at Toledo, from which we may gather that both his father and his mother, a Morales, died in his early youth. He joined the Company of Jesus in 1619, when in its most flourishing state, after the organizing genius of Aquaviva had given solid form to the bold counterstroke of Loyola to the Protestant Revolution. The Ratio Stuaiorum was just coming into full force, and Gracian was one of the earliest men in Europe to be educated on the system which has dominated the secondary education of Europe almost down to our own days. This point is of some importance, we shall see, in considering Gracian's chief work. Once enrolled among the ranks of the Jesuits, the individual disappears, the Jesuit alone remains. There is scarcely anything to record of Gracian's life, except that he was a Jesuit and engaged in teaching what passes with the order for philosophy and sacred literature, and became ultimately rector of the Jesuit college at Tarragona. His great friend was Don Vincenzo Juan de la Stanosa, a dilettante of the period, who lived at Huesca and collected coins, medals, and other archaeological bric-a-brac. Gracian appears to have shared his tastes, for Lastanosa mentions him in his description of his own cabinet. A long correspondence with him was once extant and seen by La Tassa, who gives the dates and places where the letters were written. From these it would seem that Gracian moved about considerably from Madrid to Saragossa and thence to Tarragona. From another source we learn that Philip III often had him to dinner to provide attic salt to the royal table. He preached, and his sermons were popular. In short, a life of prudent prosperity came to an end when Balthasar Gracian, rector of the Jesuit college at Tarragona, died there on the 6th of December, 1658, at the age of nearly 58 years. Of Gracian's works, there is perhaps more to say, even while leaving for separate consideration that one which is here presented to the English reader and forms his chief claim to attention. Spanish literature was passing into its period of swagger, 
a period that came to all literatures of modern Europe after the training in classics had given a fresh descent of style. The characteristic of this period in a literature is suitably enough the appearance of conceits, or elaborate and far-fetched figures of speech. The process began with Antonio Guevara, author of El Libro Aureo, from which, according to some, the English form of the disease, known as euphuism, was derived. But it received a further impetus from the success of the Stilo Culto of Gongora in poetry. Gongorism drove conceit to its farthest point. Artificiality of diction could go no farther in verse. It was only left for Gratian to apply it to prose. He did this for the first time in 1630 in his first work, El Héroe. This was published, like most of his other works, by his lifelong friend Lastanosa and under the name of Lorenzo Gratian, a suppositious brother of Gratian's, who, so far as can be ascertained, never existed. The whole of El Héroe exists in shortened form in the Oraculo Manual. The form, however, is so shortened that it would be difficult to recognize the original primores, as they are called, of El Héroe. Yet it is precisely in the curtness of the sentences that the peculiarity of the stilo culto consists. Generally elaborate metaphor and far-fetched allusions go with long and involved sentences of the periodic type. But with Gratian, the aim is as much towards shortness as towards elaboration. The embroidery is rich, but the jacket is short, as he himself might have said. As for the subject matter, the extracts in the oraculo will suffice to give some notion of the lofty ideal or character presented in El Héroe. The ideal indeed associated in the popular mind with the term Hidalgo. A later book, El Discreto, first published in 1647, gives the counterpoise to El Héroe by drawing an ideal of the prudent courtier as contrasted with the proud and spotless Hidalgo. This too is fully represented in the book before us, but the curtailment is still more marked than in the case of El Héroe. There is evidence that Gratian wrote a similar pair of contrasts, termed respectively El Galante and El Varón Atento, which were not published but were incorporated in the Oraculo Manual by Lastanosa. The consequences of this utilization of contrasts will concern us later. Reverting to Gratian's works somewhat more in their order, his Eloge of Ferdinand, the Magus of Columbus's epoch, need not much detain us. It is stilted and conventional and does not betray much historical insight. Gratian's Agudeza y Arte de Ingenio is of more importance and interest as the formal exposition of the critical principles of cultismo. It is concerned more with verse than prose, and represents the poetics of Gongorism. A curious collection of flowers of rhetoric in Spanish verse could be made from it. Of still more restricted interest is the Comulgador, or Sacred Meditations, for Holy Communion. I do not profess to be a judge of this class of literature, if literature it can be called, but the fact that the book was deemed worthy of an English translation as lately as 1676 seems to show that it still answers the devotional needs of the Catholics. It has a personal interest for Gratian, as it was the only book of his that appeared under his own name. There remains only to be considered, besides the Oraculum Manual, 
Gracian's El Criticon, a work of considerable value and at least historic interest, which appeared in the three parts dealing with youth, maturity, and old age, respectively, during the years 1650 to 53. This is a kind of philosophic romance or allegory depicting the education of the human soul. A Spaniard named Critilo is wrecked on St. Helena, and there finds a sort of man Friday, whom he calls Andreño. Andreño, after learning to communicate with Critilo, gives him a highly elaborate autobiography of his soul from the age of three days or so. They then travel to Spain, where they meet truth, valor, falsehood, and other allegorical females and males, who are labelled by Critilo for Andreño's benefit in the approved and frigid style of the allegorical teacher. Incidentally, however, the ideals and aspirations of the Spaniard of the 17th century are brought out, and from this point of view, the book derives the parallel with the Pilgrim's Progress, which Tickner had made for it. It is certainly one of the most characteristic products of Spanish literature, both for style and subject matter. Nearly all these works of Gracian were translated into most of the cultured languages of Europe, English not excepted. Part of this ecumenical fame was doubtless due to the fact that Gracian was a Jesuit, and brethren of his order translated the works of one of whom the order was justly proud. But this explanation cannot altogether account for the widespread of Gracian's works, and there remains a deposit of genuine ability and literary skill involved in most of the works I have briefly referred to. Ability and skill of an entirely obsolete kind nowadays, but holding a rank of their own in the 17th and 18th centuries, when didacticism was all the rage. It is noteworthy that the testimonia I have collected for the most part pass over the oraculo, the only work at which a modern would care to cast a second glance, and go into raptures over El Criticon and its fellows, or the reverse of raptures on Gratian's style, which after all was the most striking thing about his works. That style reaches its greatest perfection in the oraculo manual, to which we might at once turn, but for a preliminary inquiry which it seems worthwhile to make. It is a book of maxims, as distinguished from a book of aphorisms, and it is worthwhile for several reasons inquiring into maxims in general, and maxim literature in particular, before dealing with what is probably the most remarkable specimen of its class. Before, however, doing this, we may close this section of our introductory remarks by putting in, as the lawyers say, the Latin inscription given by La Tassa from the foot of the portrait of Gracian, which once stood in the Jesuit college at Calatayud, a portrait of which, alas, no trace can now be found. The lines sum up in sufficiently forcible Latin all that need be known of Balthazar Gracian and his works. P. Balthazar Gracian, utiam ab ortu emineret, in Bellomonte natus est, prope bilbilim, confinis martialis patria proximus ingenio, ut profunderet atuc Christianas argutias bilbilis, quae poini exaustam videbatur in ethnisis, ergo augens natale ingenium in nato acumine scripsit, artem ingenii et arte facit scibile, quod scibiles facit artes. Scripsit item artem prudentiae, et asse ipso artem didicit, 
Scripsit oraculum et voces sues protulit. Scripsit disertum ut se ipsum describeret, et ut scriberet eruem eruica patravit. Hec et alia eis scripta moecenates reges habuerunt, judices admirationem lectorem mundum, typographum eternitatem, Philippus tres sepe ilius argutias, interprandium versabat nedificerent sales regiis dapibus. Set cui plausus excitaverat calamo diditus missionibus, excitavit planctus verbo, excitaturus desiderium in morte qua raptus fuit. Sex decembris, anno, mille sexaginta, quinquaginta octo. Set aliquando extintus eternum lucebit. 2. Of Maxims Many men have sought to give their views about man and about life in a pithy way. A few have tried to advise man in short sentences what to do in the various emergencies of life. The former have written aphorisms, the latter maxims. Where the aphorism states a fact of human nature, a maxim advises a certain course of action. The aphorism is written in the indicative, the maxim in an imperative mood. Life is interesting, if not happy, is an aphorism of Professor Seeley's, I believe. Ascend a step to choose a friend, descend a step to choose a wife, is a maxim of Rabbi Meir, one of the doctors of the Talmud. Now it is indeed curious how few maxims have ever been written. Wisdom has been extolled on the housetops, but her practical advice seems to have been kept secret. Taking our own literature, there are extremely few books of practical maxims, and not a single one of any great merit. Sir Walter Raleigh's Cabinet Council, Penn's Maxims, and Chesterfield's Letters almost exhaust the list, and the last generally contains much more than mere maxims. Nor are they scattered with any profusion through books teeming with knowledge of life, the galaxy of English novels. During recent years, extracts of their beauties have been published in some profusion, Wit and Wisdom of Beaconsfield, Wise, Witty and Tender Sayings of George Eliot, extracts from Thackeray and the rest, but the crop of practical maxims to be found among them is extremely scanty. Aphorisms there are in plenty, especially in George Eliot, but he that is doubtful what course to pursue in any weighty crisis would woefully waste his time if he sought for advice from the novelists. Nor are the moralists more instructive in this regard. Bacon's essays leave with one the impression of fullness of practical wisdom, yet closely examined, there is very little residue of practical advice left in his pregnant sayings. Even the source of most of this kind of writing, the biblical book of Proverbs, fails to answer the particular kind of test I am at present applying. However shrewd some of them are, startling us with the consciousness how little human nature has changed, it is knowledge of human nature that they mainly supply. When we ask for instruction how to apply that knowledge, we only get variations of the theme Fear the Lord. Two thousand years of experience have indeed shown that the fear or love of the Lord forms a very good foundation for practical wisdom but it has to be supplemented by some such corollary as keep your powder dry before it becomes of direct service in the conduct of life. It is indeed because of the unpractical nature of practical maxims that they have been so much neglected. You must act in the concrete. You can only maximize in general terms. 
then again, maxims can only appeal to the mind, to the intellect. The motive force of action is the will, the temperament. As Disraeli put it, the conduct of man depends on the temperament, not upon a bunch of musty maxims. Henrietta Temple. It is only very distantly that a maxim can stir the vague desire that spurs an imitative will. True, at times we read of men whose whole life has been coloured by a single saying. But these have generally been more appeals to the imagination, like Newman's Securus Judicat Orbis Terrarum, or the Heu, Fuge Crudelas Terras, Fuge Litus Avarum, which had so decisive an effort on Savonarola's life. It is rare indeed that a man's whole life is tinged by a single practical maxim, like Sir Daniel Gooch, who was influenced by his father's advice, stick to one thing. Perhaps one of the reasons that have led literary persons to neglect the maxim as a literary form has been their own ignorance of action, and still more, their exaggerated notions of its difficulties and complexities. Affairs are not conducted by aphorisms. War is waged by a different kind of maxims from those we are considering. Yet, after all, there must be some general principles on which actions should be conducted, and one would think they could be determined. Probably the successful men of action are not sufficiently self-observant to know exactly on what their success depends, and if they did, they would in most cases try to keep it in the family, like their wealth or their trade secrets. And perhaps, after all, they are right who declare that action has little to do with intellect and much with character. To say the truth, one is not impressed with the intellectual powers of the millionaires one meets. The shadiest of journalists could often explain their own doings with more point than they. Yet there are surely intellectual qualifications required for affairs. The Suez Canal must have required as great an amount of research, emendation, sense of order and organization as, say, the Corpus Inscriptionum Latinarum, but there is no such punishment for slovenly scholarship in action as there is in letters. The Suez Canal can be dug only once. Lucretius or Latin inscriptions can be edited over and over again. Altogether, we need not be surprised if the men of action cannot put the principles of action into pointed sentences or maxims. And if men of action cannot, it is not surprising that men of letters do not for they cannot have the interest in action and its rewards which is required for worldly success, or else they would not be able to concentrate their thoughts on things which they consider of higher import. To a man of letters, the world is the devil, or ought to be, if he is to have the touch of idealism which gives colour and weight to his words. How then is he to devote his attention to worldly wisdom and the maxims that are to teach it? It is characteristic in this connection that the weightiest writer of maxims in our language is Bacon, who attempted to combine a career of affairs and of thought, and spoiled both by so doing. It is perhaps due to the subtle and all-embracing influence of Christianity on modern civilization that this divorce between idealism and the world has come about. The strenuous opposition to the world, among earnest Christians, has led to their practical withdrawal from it just as the celibacy of the clergy meant that the next generation was to be deprived of the hereditary influence of some of the purest spirits of the time, so the opposition of Christianity to the world has brought it about that the world has been unchristian. Only one serious attempt has been made to bridge the chasm. 
the idée mère of Jesuitism was to make the world Christian, by Christians becoming worldly. It was doubtless due to the reaction against the over-spiritualization of Christianity, pressed by the Protestant Reformation, but its practical result has been to make the Jesuit a worldly Christian. The control of the higher education of Europe by the Jesuits had tended, on the other hand, to make society more Christian. If then we were to look for an adequate presentation of worldly wisdom, touched with sufficient idealism to make it worthy of a man of letters, we should look for it from a Jesuit, or from one trained among the Jesuits. After all this elaborate explanation why so few maxims have been composed, it may seem contradictory to give as a further and final reason, because so many exist, under another form. For what are the majority of proverbs but maxims under another name, or rather, maxims without a name of their author? We say of proverbs, indeed, that they arise among the people, but it is one definite individual among the people that gives them the piquant form that makes them proverbial. It was, we may be sure, a definite English gaffer who first said, Pennywise, pound foolish. If we knew his name, we should call it a maxim. As his name is unknown, it ranks as a proverb. In this connection, the Talmudic proverbs and maxims are of great interest. Owing to the worthy rabbinic principle, say a thing in the name of the man who said it, we can in almost all cases trace Talmudic proverbs to their authors. Or in other words, Talmudic proverbs remain maxims. There is only one analogous case in English. A few of Benjamin Franklin's maxims, e.g., three removes are as good as a fire, have become proverbs. The abundance of proverbs is extraordinary. There is a whole bibliography devoted to the literature of proverbs. Duplessis, Bibliographie Parémiologique, Paris, 1847. And this needs nowadays a supplement as large again as the original, partly supplied by the bibliographical appendix of Heller, Altspanische Sprichwörter, 1883. Indeed, in the multitude of proverbs consists the greatest proof of their uselessness as guides of action, for by this means we get proverbs at cross-purposes. Thus, take the one I have just referred to, Pennywise, Pound Foolish, which has a variant in the proverb, Do not spoil the ship for a hapworth of tar. A man who was hesitating as to the amount or expense he would incur in any undertaking would be prompted by these sayings to be lavish. But then... How about the proverb, take care of the pence, and the pounds will take care of themselves? Between the two proverbs, he would come to the ground, and if he has the noose to decide between them, he does not need the proverbs at all. Hence it is, perhaps, that the nation that is richest in proverbs is the one that has proved itself among European peoples the least wise in action. To the Spaniards has been well applied the witticism about Charles II. They never said a foolish thing, and never did a wise one. Certainly, if proverbs be a proof of wisdom, the Spaniards have given proofs in abundance. Don Quixote is full of them, and the Spanish collections are extraordinarily rich. Now the nation that can produce good proverbs should be able to produce good maxims. Hence, we should expect the best book of maxims to emanate from a Spaniard. One characteristic of both these forms of practical wisdom is their artificiality. 
one has to think twice before the point of a proverb or a maxim is perfectly clear. The early bird catches the worm seems at first sight as meaningless a proposition as there are milestones on the Dover Road. Hence it is when the literature is passing through its artificial stage that maxims would naturally appear. So that it was clearly preordained that when the book of maxims should appear, it would be by a Jesuit, so as to be worldly, yet not too worldly, by a Spaniard, so that it should have the proverbial ring, and during the prevalence of cultismo, so that it should have the quaintness to attract attention. 3. Of the Oraculo Manual Having thus proved a priori that the ideal book of maxims was destined to be the Oraculo Manual of Balthasar Gracian, let us proceed to prove our proof, as schoolboys do with their sums. That it is the best book of maxims is a foregone conclusion, because there is none other. Schopenhauer, who translated the book, observes that there is nothing like it in German, and there is certainly none approaching it in English, and if France or Italy can produce its superior, it is strange that its fame has remained so confined to its native country. Not that there are not books teaching the art of self-advancement, in almost all languages. The success of Dr. Smile's volume on self-help is a sufficient instance of this. Curiously enough, Dr. Smile's book has had its greatest success in Italy, where it has given rise to quite a literatura selfelpista, as the Italians themselves call it. Or rather not curiously, for if you wish to find the most unromantic set of ideals nowadays, you must go search among the Romance nations. Gracian does not, however, compete with Dr. Smiles. He does not deal with Brotweisheit. He assumes that the vulgar question of bread and butter has been settled in favour of his reader. He may be worldly, but he is thinking of the great world. He writes for man with a position, and how to make the most of it. Nor is the aim he puts before such persons an entirely selfish one. The sole advantage of power is that you can do more good, is the only rational defence of ambition, and Gratian employs it. Maxim 286. Indeed, the tone of the book is exceptionally high. It is impossible to accuse a man of any meanness who is the author of such maxims as one cannot praise a man too much, who speaks well of them, who speak ill of him. 162. Friends are a second existence. 111. When to change the conversation? When they talk scandal. 250. In great crisis there is no better companion than a bold heart. 167. The secret of long life? Lead a good life. 90. Be able to boast that if gallantry, generosity and fidelity were lost in the world, man would be able to find them again in your own breast. 165. A man of honour should never forget what he is, because he sees what others are. 280. And there are whole sections dealing with such topics as rectitude, 29, sympathy with great minds, 44, a genial disposition, 79, and the like. Not that he is without the more subtle devices of the worldly wise. One could not wish to have anything more cynical or stinging than the following. Find out each man's thumbscrew, 26. A shrewd man knows that others, 
when they seek him, do not seek him, but their advantage in him and by him. 252. The truth, but not the whole truth. 181. Keep to yourself the final touches of your art. 212. Do not take payment in politeness. 191. Have a touch of the trader. 232. Think with the few and speak with the many. 43. Never have a companion who casts you in the shade. 152. Never become paradoxical in order to avoid the trite. 143. Do not show your wounded finger. 145. The characteristic of the book is this combination, or rather contrast, of high tone and shrewdness. Gracian is both wisely worldly and worldly wise. After all, there does not seem to be any inherent impossibility in the combination. There does not seem any radical necessity why a good man should be a fool. One always has a certain grudge against Thackeray for making his Colonel Newcomb so silly at times, though perhaps the irony, the pathos, the tragedy of the book required it. As a matter of fact, the holiest of men have been some of the shrewdest, for their friends at least, if not for themselves. The explanation of the combination in Gratian is simple enough. He was a Jesuit, and the Jesuits have just that combination of high tone and worldly wisdom as their raison d'être. And in the case of the oraculo, the mixture was easily affected by Gratian or his friend Lastanosa. For Gratian had written at least two series of works in which this contrast was represented by separate books, two of these describing the qualities of the hero and the prudent man, El Eroe and El Discreto, were published and are represented in the oraculo, two others dealing with the gallant and the cautious man, El Galante and El Varón Atento, are referred to by Lastanosa in the preface of El Discreto, and are also doubtless represented in the book before us. One may guess that the section on high-mindedness, 128, or on nobility of feeling, 131, comes from El Galante, while better mad with the rest of the world than wise alone, 133, smacks of El Varón Atento. At times, we get the two tones curiously intermingled. Choose an heroic ideal, 75, seems at first sight a noble sentiment, but Gratian goes on to qualify it by adding, but rather to emulate than to imitate. The modernness of the tone is the thing that will strike most readers, apart from these contrasts. Here and there one may be struck by an archaic note. Never compete would scarcely be the advice of a worldly teacher nowadays. But on the whole, there is a tone of modern good society about the maxims, which one would scarcely find in contemporary English works like Peacham's, or even in contemporary French authors like Charon. The reason is that modern society is permeated by influences which Gratian himself represented. The higher education of Europe for the last two and a half centuries has been in the hands of Jesuits or in schools formed on the Ratio Studiorum, and society in the stricter sense traces from the Hotel Rambouillet, where one half the influence was Spanish. Gratian thus directly represents the tone of the two societies which have set the tone of our society of today, and it is no wonder, therefore, if he is modern. 
Even in his style, there is something of a modern epigrammatic ring. At times, there is the euphoistic quaintness, e.g., one must pass through the circumference of time before arriving at the centre of opportunity. But as a rule, the terseness and point of the maxim approximate to the modern epigram. El excusarse antes de ocasión es culparse might be both the source and the model of qui s'excuse s'accuse. The terseness is indeed excessive and carried to tacitian extremes. A poco saber camino real, ultima felicidad el filosofar, harto presto, si bien. Cassian jerks out four or five words where a popular preacher would preach a sermon. Yet I cannot agree with the writers who call him obscure. He is one of the writers that make you think before you grasp his meaning, but the meaning is there, and put plainly enough, only tersely, and very often indirectly, after the manner of proverbs. There is indeed no doubt that he and his predecessors were influenced by the form of the Spanish proverb in drawing up aphorisms and maxims. I say predecessors, for aphorismic literature, at any rate, was no novelty in Spain. Among the long list of books on aphorisms, possessed by the late Sir William Sterling Maxwell, and still at Kiel, there are fully a dozen Spanish ones who precede Gracian, Hernando Diaz, López de Corelas, and Melchior de Santa Cruz are the most important, though the latter is more full of anecdotage. Among them is a book of Aphorismos by Antonio Pérez, whose Relaciones has been the chief means of blackening Philip II's character. The former are undoubtedly of the same style as Gracian, and probably influenced him, though as they are aphorisms and not maxims, I have not been able to quote parallels in the notes. Thus, una obra vale miliares de gracias, Peras, Aphorismos 1, 198, has the same proverbial ring. It is curious to see Lytton's The pen is mightier than the sword, anticipated by Peres's La pluma corta mas que espadas afiliadas, Ibidem 199, or Voltaire's Speech was given us to conceal our thoughts, in Peres's Las palabras vestido de los conceptos, 2, 130. This last example has all Gracian's terseness, while Peres's Amigos deste siglo, rostros humanos, corazones de fieras, 271, has both terseness and cynicism. Certainly the only other work in Spanish or any other literature preceding Gracian on anything like the same lines is this book of Aphorismos by Antonio Pérez. It is somewhat of a question to my mind how far Gracian was the author of the final form of the maxims, as we have them in the oráculo. Those taken from El Héroe and El Discreto differ from their originals with great advantage. They are terser, more to the point, and less euphuistic. Now, the address to the reader has all these qualities, and we may assume was written by its signatory, Don Vincentio de la Stanosa. It is just possible that we owe to him the extreme terseness and point of the majority of the maxims of the Oraculum Manual. It must not, however, be assumed that they are all as pointed and epigrammatic as those I have quoted. Gracian seems advisedly to have embedded his jewels in a duller setting. At times, he vies with the leaders of the great sect of the platitudinarians, and he can be as banal as he is brilliant. Even as it is, 
his very brilliancy wearies, and after fifty maxims or so, one longs for a more fruity wisdom, a more digressive discussion of life, like those learned, wise, and witty essays of Mr. Stevenson, which may some day take higher rank as literature than even his novels. Perhaps, after all, the weariness to which I refer may be due to the cautious tone of the book. To succeed, one must be prudent. That is the great moral of the book. And if so, does it seem worthwhile to succeed? If life is to be denuded of the aleatory element, is it worth living? Well, Gracian meets you when in that temper, too. It is indeed remarkable how frequently he refers to luck, how you are to trust your luck, weigh your luck, follow your luck, know your unlucky days, and so forth. Is all this a confession that after all life is too complex a game for any rules to be of much use? Granted, but there is one thing certain about life, and that is put by Goethe in the lines which I, following Schopenhauer, have placed at the head of my translation. One must be either hammer or anvil in this world, and too great an excess of idealism only means that the unideal people shall rule the world. To guard against both extremes, we have the paradoxical advice I have heard attributed to Mr. Ruskin. Fit yourself for the best society, and then never enter it. Whether any ideal person will learn to rule the world by studying Gratian's or anyone else's maxims, is somewhat more doubtful, for reasons I have given above in discussing proverbs. The man who can act on maxims can act without them, and so does not need them, and there is the same amount of contradiction in maxims as in proverbs. Thus, to quote an example from the book before us, from Maxim 132, it would seem best to keep back an intended gift. Long expected is highest prized whereas from Maxim 236, we learn that the promptness of the gift obliges the more strongly. Which Maxim are we to act upon? That depends on circumstances, and the judgment that can decide on the circumstances can do without the Maxims. I cannot therefore promise success in the world to whomsoever may read this book, otherwise I should perhaps not have published it. But whether Gratian's Maxims are true or useful, scarcely affects their value. To the student of literature as such, the flimsiest sentiment, or the merest paradox aptly put, is worth the sublimest truth, ill-expressed. And there can be little doubt that Gratian puts his points well and vigorously. I cannot hope to have reproduced adequately all the vigour and force of his style, the subtlety of his distinctions, or the shrewdness of his mother-wit. But enough, I hope, has emerged during the process of translation to convince the reader that Gratian's Oraculo Manual has much wisdom in small compass and well put. End of section two.